You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. I have a recurring daydream where I inexplicably discover an extra room behind the closet I'm recording in. It's my own personal office, and in my fantasies, it is glorious. There's a fine leather Regency armchair and ottoman for me to kick up on while I'm reading. There's a hundred-year-old pull-down map cabinet on the wall so I can stare purposelessly at the continental U.S. or Illinois circa 1908 and then do that thing where I let the map snap, roll up, and disappear the way I got in trouble for in elementary school. And center stage, there's the desk. An antique quarter-sawn oak draftsman's desk. Dark and woody and wonderful, with more than a dozen pull-out drawers for all my miscellaneous doodads and nonsense. In my dreams, it's perfect. And every last element can be found at Industrial Artifacts. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chock-blocked with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar, searching for that fabulous kitchen table, or, sigh, building out your non-existent home office space, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. Check out the link in the episode notes or go to industrialartifacts.net today. And remember to enter coupon code the constant one word, to get 15% off your first order. One day, pull-down map. One day. Martha died alone. It was September 1st, 1914, in her small home in Cincinnati, Ohio, which she had shared with George up until his death in 1910. For those last four years, Martha lived on, but barely. She didn't eat much or drink or even move. But she lived because what other option was there? Survival. That's all. A few weeks before her death, she had had a stroke, and maybe it was that which finally took her, or else the loneliness, or maybe just plain old age. She was 29, after all. Her body was discovered around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Immediately, it was frozen in a block of ice and sent by train to Washington to be dissected, to be photographed. 
to be taxidermied. For four years, Martha had lived in a rarefied kind of solitude. But in death, she was indoctrinated into an elite kind of company, a club so exclusive that people had spent the last 100 years insisting it didn't exist. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Endlings. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. John James Audubon was obsessed by birds from the time he was a child. He came to America from France in 1803 under a counterfeit passport to avoid being drafted by Napoleon and settled with a family of Quakers near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. His father held hopes that he'd get into mining, but for Ottoman, it was only birds. He learned to study them, find them, draw them, and stuff them. He eventually ended up in Missouri, working in trading, import, and export on the Mississippi River. But he hated the business and dissolved it within a few years so that he could devote himself fully to birds. Over the course of his life, Audubon observed thousands of bird species, painting and describing them for his books, The Birds of America, and Ornithological Biographies. Every day he would rise at three in the morning, trek out to find birds, and observe them through the afternoon. Then he'd come home and draw or paint what he had seen for a few hours, and in the evening go back out to observe some more before bed. Many of these days were unremarkable. Sometimes he might find some interesting specimen to observe. Very occasionally, he might even chance upon a new species. But there was one day that stood out from all the rest. He wrote about it in Ornithological Biographies. I dismounted, seated myself on an eminence, and began to mark with my pencil, making a dot for every flock that passed. In a short time... Finding the task which I had undertaken impracticable as the birds poured in in countless multitudes, I rose and, counting the dots then put down, found that 163 had been made in 21 minutes. I traveled on and still met more the farther I proceeded. The air was literally filled with pigeons. The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. The dung fell in spots not unlike melting flakes of snow and the continued buzz of wings had a tendency to lull my senses to repose. I cannot describe to you the extreme beauty of their aerial evolutions. When a hawk chanced to press upon the rear of the flock at once like a torrent and with a noise like thunder, they rushed into a compact mass, pressing upon each other towards the center. In these almost solid masses, they darted forward in undulating and angular lines, descended and swept close over the earth with inconceivable velocity, mounted perpendicularly so as to resemble a vast column, and, when high, were seen wheeling and twisting within their continued lines, which then resembled the coils of a gigantic serpent. Before sunset, 
I reached Louisville, distant from Hardensburg, 55 miles. The pigeons were still passing in undiminished numbers and continued to do so for three days in succession. The birds Audubon described were, as you might have guessed, no ordinary pigeons. They were passenger pigeons. At the time Audubon attempted to dot out their flocks, the passenger pigeon was the most numerous bird on Earth, with an estimated population between three and up to six billion, almost all of which were pressed between New York State in the east and Wisconsin in the west. They nested and bred around the Great Lakes and wintered around the Carolinas, west across the Gulf Coast to Texas. When they moved, they shook the earth and darkened the sun. Great streams of muted blues and grays, iridescent purples, olive browns, like rivers in the sky that passed overhead for hours or days at a time. A mile wide, 300 miles long, millions upon millions of birds zipping along at 60 or more miles an hour right above the heads of the new European settlers who were overtaking the central United States. It was said that if you stood underneath one of these cooing, writhing clouds and fired a shotgun into the air, you could drop 60 birds with both barrels. And so, that's what they did. In January of 1565, French explorer René Laudinier and his men shot 10,000 passenger pigeons near Jacksonville, Florida, with primitive long guns in less than two months. Settlers could send out their youngest child with a rifle and collect meat enough for the family in a few minutes. But better still was to keep firing, keep killing, keep collecting. The times were hard, and the pigeon meat delicious, salted or pickled or smoked. The people under the birds killed thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon millions. But that was understandable. The winters were lean and hungry, protein at a premium. And there were just so many birds. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When the railroads began to spread, the hunting became systematized, corporatized. The cities of New York and Baltimore and Chicago, Providence and Buffalo and Philadelphia, they all caught a taste for the passenger pigeon. And as they went, so went the nation. Pigeons were canned and potted, sold by the string or by the barrel. They were captured and released from traps for shooting competitions. 
hundreds of hunters and trappers were employed full-time to track and kill the quarry. They derived new ways to accomplish this. They'd track down brooding sites and go around the forests with sticks, knocking over nests to grab the flightless juveniles. When that proved too slow, they began to light the forests afire, gathering up the scorched remains as the embers cooled. They soaked oats in booze and sprinkled them out in front of the flocks to drunken them for easy pickings. They would capture one pigeon, sew its eyes shut, tie a string around its leg, and place it upon a stool near a giant net. When the flock passed over, the trappers would pull the string, causing the so-called stool pigeon to fall and flap to the ground, whereupon the flock, thinking someone had found food, would land in the waiting nets to be harvested by the thousands. Towns lucky enough to be under wing were sending millions of birds each to packing plants and restaurants and grocers and butchers across the country. By 1876, there were so many pigeons riding the railroad that they cost more to ship than they did to sell. So, trappers began delivering them alive, fresher, tastier, more expensive. Whole trains filled with millions of cooing pigeons, wending their way from here to there as they always had, but on land now, and without food or water. In the sky, they were dwindling. But nobody seemed to notice, or more to it, nobody believed their eyes. By 1878, when the last large nesting flock of passenger pigeons was found and shortly thereafter slaughtered near Petoskey, Michigan, the passenger pigeon was at fast risk of extinction. But the people of America denied it. They denied it, first of all, on the grounds that God had created the universe and all life upon it and balanced everything as it should be. It was, they believed, impossible for an animal to go extinct, because that would go against the perfection of God's creation. There were, after all, only as many species as God had made in Genesis. If it were possible for one to disappear, then it was possible for any to disappear, and eventually there shouldn't be any animals left. A more intricate idea than that was called the Great Chain of Being, which said there was an ordered hierarchy to all creation, starting with God at the top, followed by his angels, mankind, the animals, plants, and finally the stones and metals and minerals themselves. The prototype of this concept came from Plato and, ready? Fucking Aristotle, but found an even more dogmatic expression through Renaissance Christianity, and was still predominant into the 19th century. Because of this intricate, stratified order, you couldn't have things going extinct, because that would leave holes in the very heart of nature, causing all of creation to collapse. For anyone who's pulling out their Google machines right now, let me save you the trouble. Yes, they knew about dinosaurs and woolly mammoths, nautilus, saber-toothed tigers, and any great number of other quite extinct species. But they didn't know they were extinct. Thomas Jefferson had argued that the woolly mammoth must just be out there somewhere else in the world, still alive but undiscovered. And that was how the Enlightenment dealt with the discovery of fossil after fossil of animals seemingly absent from the Earth. Maybe the Megalosaurus found in 1827 doesn't live in Oxfordshire anymore, but there's no reason to think it doesn't live anywhere. Starting in 1796, the paleontologist Georges Cuvier 
tried to tell the world that animals were extinct, but very few would listen. There were too many places on the undiscovered Earth where the missing animals could be hiding. By the 1870s, most scientists had come around to Cuvier, and Darwin was out there to really drive the point home any minute now, but plenty of good, common religious people and their congressmen were unconvinced. In 1857, Ohio tried to pass a law protecting the bird, but it died in committee, with the chair saying that the animals were too abundant to be in need. In 1848, Massachusetts went further still in the other direction, passing a law protecting pigeon trappers from any interference. A $10 fine was set for anyone found damaging nets or shooing pigeons away from them. New York finally passed legislation in 1867, just one year before the final large flock was destroyed in Michigan. The passenger pigeons were effectively gone by 1869. Yet even then, the American people refused to believe it. These were birds that left knee-deep dung under their flight path, that blotted out the sun, that cooed deafeningly by the billions. Could any absence have ever been so conspicuous? For 30 years, politicians and civilians talked about the birds having not died, but rather absconded to Mexico, or further south to Ecuador, or even Brazil. Some even said that they had taken off across the Atlantic, living as seabirds somewhere out over the open ocean. They could be anywhere, anywhere but gone. Extinction as a concept was no longer unacceptable to most people of the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. But even though it was acknowledged that animals could die out, they still couldn't accept the idea that people, that mankind, could be responsible. People, after all, were just persons. And how could any person take the blame for billions of dead? It was both too incredible and too awful. In 1897, Michigan placed a ban on netting masses of pigeons within two miles of their nesting sites. No nesting sites had been seen in two decades. The last wild single nest to be recorded came from Minneapolis, 1895, two years before Michigan's ban. The last wild bird was spotted in Oakford, Illinois, in 1901. It was promptly shot, stuffed, and put on display at Millican University. Hundreds of captive birds were kept in zoos from coast to coast and throughout Europe, but they didn't breed well there, and zoo-goers weren't especially interested in a slightly more colorful mourning dove. But some effort was made to try to conserve the species. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, David Whitaker managed to get a single breeding pair up to a population of 15. In Chicago, Charles Whitman purchased up a total of 19 birds, which he attempted to breed largely unsuccessfully and hybridize with other phenotypically similar pigeon species. Most of those efforts failed, and those hybrids that succeeded were sterile. By 1907, he was down to two infertile male hybrids. Whitaker's Milwaukee population died from harsh winter in 1909. That left Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Cincinnati Zoo. In 1875, 
they had somewhere around 25 pigeons. Whitman contacted the zoo in 1902 to let them know that they were, essentially, the last bulwark left between the once most populous bird in the entire world and total, utter extinction. The Cincinnati Zoo managed to breed one successful generation, but the numbers then dwindled until, in 1909, there were only two, a male named after George Washington and a female named for the first First Lady, Martha. When George died on July 10, 1910, Martha became the sole living passenger pigeon in the world. The zoo put out rewards for anyone who could find Martha a mate, but they might as well have put up wanted posters for a unicorn. Today, we have a word for Martha's profound and curious widowhood. Endlings. The last of the lasts. There is Benjamin, the last Tasmanian tiger, who died in Hobart Zoo in 1936. Booming Ben, the last heath hen, who disappeared from Martha's Vineyard in 1932. Celia, the last Pyrenean ibex, who was found dead in the Spanish Pyrenees in 2000. A clone of Celia was made in 2003, retrieving the ibex from the halls of the dead. For the seven minutes it took Celia's clone to die of lung failure. Lonesome George, the last Pinta Island tortoise, who lived an endling for nearly 40 years until his death in 2012. And then there's the endling of the Carolina parakeet, named Inca, who died in February of 1918, in the same cage as Martha had. Martha died alone and became the first named member of the unenviable club of endlings. The news of her death spread throughout the world. If there was anyone left still laboring under the impression that humans couldn't destroy a species, the newspapers announcing Martha's demise stood as a final corrective. Around the same time Martha was found dead on the floor of her cage in Cincinnati, Alexander Graham Bell took a new interest in studying temperature and the atmosphere. Three years later, he published his results warning that the burning of fossil fuels was causing a greenhouse effect upon the climate. The people who thought the passenger pigeon could never die knew he was wrong. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, and Kevin McLeod. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters. Right now, that includes something like seven-tenths of one percent of y'all. But it's early yet. Our Patreon game is just a wee bitty one-month-old baby now. I'm currently working on a story that is doing to my jaw what Rob Mason did to my freshman science textbook, knocking it repeatedly and forcefully to the floor. We'll be back with that in two weeks, June 4th. I think we can get the last three-tenths of a percent to bring us up to one percent by then. The Patreon link is in the episode notes. Go now, check it out. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where in September of 1836, a cloud of passenger pigeons blackened the sky for several days, this has been The Constant. <laughs>